Turn with me once again in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, uh, as I said at the beginning, we'll be pressing into our second of the four names that are given to the coming Messiah, to Christ, uh, uh, really living in the reality that each one of these names combines both a human aspect and a divine aspect or attribute. It's a, it's a hinting, a strong hinting, at the reality that Christ would be truly man and yet truly God. This morning we're going to cover mighty God. So let me begin in Isaiah 9, and I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 6. I would remind you, uh, if you weren't able to be with us last week, and even if you were and in the busyness of life you've forgotten over the last week, um, Isaiah is reaching back in time here. Uh, And it's very dark and very difficult in Israel when Isaiah is writing. They're going through this cycle of terrible kings, good kings, uh, impending doom and oppression and captivity, exile uh, that's going to take place, um, already suffering happening. And so Isaiah is wanting to give them hope. And so he reaches all the way back to the story of Gideon from Judges to do that. And it kind of becomes this wonderful living picture for us uh, spiritually of what it's like when Christ comes. So Isaiah 9. Picking up in verse 1, reading down through verse 6. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There could be few things darker in this world than the inside of an 18th century chimney in England. And yet the career then of chimney sweeps rose up. Now, uh, my oldest son, uh, when he was very, very small, fell in love with the chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. He thought it was the coolest thing in the world. He wasn't even able to speak yet, but he would run around the house jumping, and, and it took us a while to finally figure out what it was he was so excited about, and then it was this idea of a chimney sweep. And, and I think most of us, we tend to think of chimney sweeps that way, uh, these kind of lovable, laughable, happy characters, but that was not the reality of what it was like to be a chimney sweep in, in England. Chimney sweeps as a career, as a profession, really cropped up after the Great London Fire of 1666. Um, and so the terror, fear of another fire happening arose. The, the culture had moved away from fires and an open hearth in the center of a room to actually building chimneys. But then they realized now the chimneys need to be cleaned. Well, how are you going to clean them? And their best method they came up with was to send small children down the chimney to scrape the sides, to get away the soot and the creosote. Now, if you're thinking that, that you'd have to be a small child, you're right. And so master chimney sweeps would go and they would kidnap or they would buy children from impoverished parents, children as young as four and five years of age. They would then put brushes in their hands and make them either descend from the top or to actually climb up from the bottom up the chimney to go as far as they could, scraping the sides. They were literally living chimney sweeps. The holes were incredibly incredibly small, so master chimney sweeps were concerned about a child getting too big, and so they were intentionally malnourished. They clothed them in thin clothing because they wanted them to not get stuck. Not because they cared about them, but because it would hinder their business. Most of them went around shoeless so that they would develop calluses on the bottom of their feet. Droves of child chimney sweeps would die from specifically from cancers that they would develop from working in the midst of the soot conditions. Their eyes would bulge from their heads. They would become red-rimmed. They were beaten mercilessly to get them to go up the chimney. Master chimney sweeps would poke their bare feet with needles and pins to make them climb higher. And if that would not motivate them enough, and this is hard to wrap your brains around, with a five-year-old child, they would build a small fire in the hearth to make them climb faster and further. 
Well, it didn't take long before there was some uproar about the population of London in particular saying, we've got to get away from this practice. Um, but there was tremendous resistance to it. Because if without the chimneys being swept, we could have another great fire. Different organizations spoke up at, or rose up specifically surrounding the cause of eliminating the practice of using children as chimney sweeps. Some organizations, one uh, in part headed by William Wilberforce, famous for helping to end slavery, the practice of slavery in England, he gave a great deal of his own money and his own time. He would introduce bills trying to eliminate the practice of children's chimney sweeps he actually fronted an organization where he gave a lot of his own wealth, offering massive rewards if someone could come up with a mechanical means, because the thinking was if you could do it mechanically, you lose all the labor. They would meet together, they'd get chimney, master chimney sweeps together, and they would reason with them and try to appeal to them uh, to do away from the practice. And yet the practice continued for well over 200 years. Hundreds of children in London alone dying. Typically, they would die from getting stuck in the chimney and they would suffocate to death before they could break through the wall and rescue them. The queen at the time, uh, towards the end of this practice, was Queen Victoria, famous for loving her children. And yet she put no effort behind ending the practice of children chimney sweeps. When her own son, in his 30s, recovered from an illness, she threw a nationwide party. While she's throwing this party, children are dying, trapped in chimneys. And my point with this is, though there was political pressure to try to stop it, and though there were wealthy benefactors trying to end it by offering rewards, there was no reasoning with those truly who had the power. Because it was only to their benefit to continue this wicked practice. They cared very little to nothing for these children. It's hard to imagine a darker more confining, claustrophobic space than to be a small child stuck in a chimney in the 18th century England, and no one cares. And the reality is, darkness brings injustice and bondage. But the Messiah is the mighty God who delivers. That's the point of this name. Wonderful Counselor taught us that darkness comes and it brings confusion. We need answers, and the Wonderful Counselor gives us answers. Mighty God teaches us that when darkness comes, there always comes injustice and bondage, oppression, and it's the mighty God who delivers us. So if wonderful counselor gives us answers, mighty God brings us power. And so we can work our way through it this morning, uh, kind of tracking with what Isaiah does, because Isaiah has given us this wonderful living illustration of Gideon, and Gideon coming at another dark, oppressive, trapped time in order to bring the light of God. And so we can actually walk through it like a, like a story. So chapter one is this, when darkness arrives. Uh, like any great story, you've got to introduce a conflict before, long before there's a resolution. You've got to give everybody a reason, or the reader, the listener, the viewer, a reason to be emotionally engaged with it. And so Isaiah does that by engaging the people of Israel in his day, who were under oppression and darkness, with another time of oppression and darkness. Uh, Gideon is alive in, uh, during a time when the Midianites have come and have enacted terrible things. Uh, the, the Midianites, uh, Judges 6 records for us, would come a couple times of a year, particularly when there was harvest. They were a nomadic tribe, descendants of Ishmael. They lived in the northern and in the, west, or in the eastern regions of where Israel's promised land ultimately would be given to them. They were a nomadic people that would move around. They didn't grow their own crops. They, they were uh, opportunists, warrior kind of a tribe. And they would all move totally as a group. And when they came to Israel, Judges describes them as descending like locusts upon the land. And there's two inferences there. One is the sheer numbers of the people that would come. And secondarily, the consequence of what locusts would do. Locusts consume everything green. Anything in their path, they're going to devour. And that's what the Midianites would do. And so they would come a couple times a year, and they would come and they would devour anything and everything in their path. They'd eat all the food, all of the harvest, kill all the animals, and then they'd move on to the next place. Harvest time in agrarian culture is typically a time of celebration, a time of joy and a time of delight. But during Gideon's time, it would have been a time of terror and of fear. It would have been a time of already training your children what to do when they heard the sound of the Midianites coming. You wanted to run and hide. 
It would have been a time of fathers trying to get whatever they could to maybe protect their family, considering sending away their wife and their children because all kinds of horrible abuses were about to descend upon them. So here's a time, it's supposed to be celebration, it's supposed to be wonderful, and instead it's abject terror and oppression. They would bring bondage with them. They'd bring chains with them. They would bring to them reminders that you are going nowhere. You are under our thumb. They would bring hopelessness. I've told you this before. The CIA has done these studies. If you want to break a person mentally, if you want to get them to do whatever you want them to do, if you want to control them, there's the pathway. It's not making them listen to screaming children. That's not what does it. Crying babies. It's not making them listen to heavy rock 24 hours a day. It's not keeping the lights on. It's not underfeeding them. All those play a role into one thing that will absolutely help you control somebody, and it's to remove all hope from them. It breaks people. You read stories of POWs who escape, people who survive, versus people who give up. And I don't mean that judgmentally, versus people who don't make it. And a telling, shocking difference, but shouldn't shock us at all, is people who have hope of a better day and people who don't. I was reading one story recently of a man, Jewish man, spent most of World War II in a concentration camp. He had every legitimate reason to believe that his wife and his children, his parents, had all been killed. But instead, every day, he started his day thinking about what they would be doing that day if they were alive, believing, convincing himself they're alive, they're alive, they're alive, and would go to bed every night, remind himself, I wonder what my wife did, I wonder what my children did today, and, and telling himself they must be alive, they must be alive, they must be alive, knowing, knowing they must already be dead. He ends World War II, and they were dead. But as you read his story, what he did was he tracked his way through the concentration camp and his person to the right and the left of him died. His people just died from, from lack of food, yes, but he had the same lack of food. From beatings, yes, but he had the same beatings. What they died from was a loss of hope. He maintained hope. You remove hope from a person, you can dominate them, you can destroy them. Where are you hopeless? Where are you powerless? In seasons of bondage and oppression... In seasons of darkness, it really becomes every man for himself. When Victoria in England was challenged about the use of these children for chimney sweeps, some of the opponents of the bills cried out in fear that without this necessity, their homes and the entire city might burn to the ground. Wasn't the life of a child a small price to pay for the safety of the whole city? Wasn't the price of an impoverished child whose parents didn't even care for him enough but sold him, who would probably die of a, small, of a young age from tuberculosis anyway, wasn't it better that they spend their few years on earth working to keep us all safe and happy? What a warped morality. When there's oppression, the ones who suffer the most are the vulnerable and the weak. It's those that have no power to defend themselves, no power to deliver themselves. No power to demand justice. They have no voice. Those are the ones that suffer the most when there's the presence of darkness, of oppression and bondage. We see a glimpse of this in the story of Ruth and Naomi. Remember, they go away uh, and into a foreign land. Naomi goes away into a foreign land, flees with her husband because there's famine in the land. They flee away. Their sons marry uh, local women. The, the father, the sons die. They come back, and the only ones you have are Naomi and Ruth, and they're widows. They have no property. They have no power. They have no provision. They have no protection. How are they going to survive? Their only way of survival is the kindness of a stranger to them. God built this into his law. Do you, why would God have to build it into his law that you make a way for widows to be fed and orphans to be cared for? Why do you have to legalize that? Because when we are under pressure, when we're experiencing darkness, our, every one of our tendencies is to look out for ourselves. And the ones who will suffer the most are the weak and the vulnerable. One of the terrifying things about oppression and bondage is that the powerful, the ones who can make a difference, are typically served by the oppression of others. There's no personal benefit or drive for them to change what they're doing to help the helpless. It's going to cost me. And so they're okay with you continuing to suffer. Have you ever kept silent when you have seen someone else oppressed? 
Have you ever refused to lend your voice to speak into someone else's difficulty? You then understand and know the temptation. Do you really want to jump in their fight? Do you think that when famine hits, people don't love their children? Do you think when famine hits, people don't care for the elderly or the weak? Not really. It's that they're convinced, and frankly, sometimes rightly, that if I give of what I need to survive to help this weak one, this elderly one, this disabled one, this small one, if I give what I need to survive for them to survive, then we're both going to die. So why would I do it? This is the case in Gideon's day. When you start reading through Judges, you start to realize there were some Jews that had power. There were some Jews who still had some means to defend themselves and to be able to open their city doors to defend the weak and the helpless and to fight against the Midianites, and they refuse. They're cowards. Oppression and bondage reveals selfishness and cowardice in everybody. When darkness comes, oppression and bondage arrives. But it's not just in Israel. Uh, While Isaiah is using this as a picture, we understand he's talking about the Messiah coming. And so we live in the reality there's oppression and bondage in life itself. The darkness that that is experienced in Israel is but a mere shadow of the spiritual darkness that we all live in. Just like Gideon is a type or a shadow, but a pale image of the true Messiah in his deliverance. We know that there are so many ways that the lost suffer in darkness. And if you were to, you could do an entire study. I, it was one of those, um, when I study the Bible, I'm always like, oh, this would be a great book. And I, and I don't, I mean, just a study, a great study would be on the contrast between light and darkness in the Bible. How frequently it is used to illustrate sin and hopelessness and bondage and oppression and how light is used to picture deliverance and glory and the power of God. We know that sinners are in bondage and oppression in the darkness. They're blind to their own true condition. In 2 Corinthians, you you remember that we're told that they don't even understand the things of God. The touch of depravity in the life of a sinner is so that they don't even comprehend the truth. Without God's, get this word, illumination, they cannot understand even the truths of the gospel. I'm not sure how dark darkness has to be for you to realize it's so dark you can't even know that you're dark. You're blind to your own blindness, as Paul Tripp puts it. You can't even see how much you are ruled by your own desires, selfishness, and sinfulness. They're blind to their truth. You can't help somebody who doesn't believe they have a problem. They're blind to their own true condition. There's physical suffering and death when, when sin happens in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin in the, in the garden, our father and our mother Uh, are there before God, and God tells them suffering now comes. All physical suffering, all physical suffering and death is the result of sin. Hear me right, I don't mean you sinned, so God put his finger on you and made you sick. I don't mean that, although that can happen. But all physical suffering and all physical death is the result that we live in a sin-fallen world. The winding down of the clock of our bodies, the increasing weaknesses that we experience, the frailties that we go through. You know, we move from small children who will jump off of high ledges to stages in our lives where we're afraid to take the half step out of our garage that we might fall. There's a frailty and a brokenness to our life. Even in the work of this world, it's thorns and thistles, it's blood and pain. There's physical suffering and death that is part of the the bondage and the darkness of this world, there's satanic assault. He is roaming this earth seeking whom he may, whom he may devour. Satan is one who loves to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan spiritually is what the Midianites were like physically. What can I take? Who can I kill? And what can I destroy? Constantly, our spiritual lives live in this world where Satan is controlling a world system that is trying to find every way possible to corrupt anything good, anything righteous, anything holy. And the world suffers under the sin. We sing a a hymn that the weary world rejoices. But God says in Romans that the world itself is groaning. What is the extent of that groaning, that painfulness, longing for deliverance? It's the same kind of pain and longing and groaning that we see women go through when they are giving birth and labor. Now here's the harsh and difficult thing about all this. We are in all these dark things, 
in all these situations, we are utterly powerless to change them. I think hopelessness is one thing that destroys you mentally. (laughs) I think powerlessness does the same thing. That there is no escape from this. We can't save ourselves. We can't suddenly flip a switch and no longer desire uh, our sinful things that our hearts long for. We, we can't suddenly change. I can't wake up tomorrow and suddenly be the husband, father, pastor, neighbor, citizen that God would want me to be. I feel a sense of powerlessness in my sanctification. I, why, do I, why do I struggle with some of the same sins that I've struggled with I feel like my whole life? There's a sense of powerlessness in broken relationships. You can't make other people see truth. You can't make other people, you can't compel them to be humble. I can't compel broken relationships of my past and my life to suddenly for this person to be burdened for reconciliation, this person to sit down, this person to have a hard time. I can't, I can't control, I'm powerless to do this. I'm powerless in health issues. You, you, you can eat right, you can exercise, you can go to the doctor, you can do all whatever it is you think is going to make you physically healthy, and yet we all live in the reality that something could strike you tomorrow and you're powerless to stop it. I'm powerless to affect change in this world that I'm discouraged by. I'm powerless to stop human trafficking. I'm powerless to, to stop 21st century forms of slavery. I'm powerless to stop corruption. I'm powerless to expose corrupt politicians. I'm powerless to expose corrupt CEOs who the, the real estate bubble pops. They all get out with their money and move, move to buying their own islands while other people are kicked out of their homes because they can't pay their rent. I'm powerless. There's a sense of powerlessness in, in the oppression and the bondage. The most vulnerable, the weakest among us suffer the most. Children, the elderly, the impoverished, the disabled, the sickly, they experience all of the suffering spiritually and even more of bondage and oppression at the hands of evil people. You see it even in Jesus' day spiritually where the religious leaders of the day used their position to put more bondage on people. Jesus actually described it in that kind of burden-bearing way. He said, you put burdens on men's backs that you wouldn't lift with one finger and you yourselves don't carry. What he's exposing then is their hypocrisy. He's telling the Pharisees, you have all these rules that you put everyone else under and you don't even live under them. But everybody thinks you do. This is how you really get God's favor is live under all these rules and you hypocrites don't even do it. And so on one occasion when a man is healed on the Sabbath, they kick him out of the synagogue. Because how dare you be healed on the Sabbath and say Jesus did it. There's, there's oppression even when we would turn in the midst of our hopelessness and powerlessness and we would turn to divine. We turn to God, theology. Give me then some truth. Give me some spiritual direction and waiting there are wolves in sheep's clothing to take advantage of the vulnerable. Well, chapter one sets the stage. You've got to have a conflict before you can ever ha- desire or want for resolution. You've got to have the giant in the valley screaming, where is somebody? Before you can ever look for someone. And so chapter two of the story becomes, where's our hero? And automatically in that moment, some of you, a lyric through a song went through your brain, I need a hero. Where is the hero? And the hero is presented with Gideon. When you look back in the story in Judges 6 and 7 of Gideon showing up, uh, you have light. There's lots of darkness, and then Gideon is the light. They, the Judges is this never-ending cycle. If every man does that which is right in his own eyes, uh, terrible, wicked, horrible things happen. God raises up a judge, uh, is what they're called. And so some of the famous ones you may be most familiar with, Deborah or Gideon or Samson. And they're a judge, and they're empowered to deliver. And so then suddenly there's years of peace. Uh, under Deborah, Deborah and Barak, you have, these, you have these numbers that keep showing up. You have 40 years of rest, and then seven years of affliction. Gideon, 40 years of rest, seven years of affliction. And that's what would happen. When the judge would die or move off the scene, they go right back to where they were before, and they have this endless cycle. And so they're in the bottom of this cycle, seven years of Midianite oppression, seven years of having their harvest eaten, seven years of having their livestock taken from them. And then Gideon comes. But, but Gideon's a strange dude, man. Gideon, 
Gideon is one of those weird characters. Uh, my family, we were out and about this week, we listening to the radio, and a guy comes on, he, he was a preacher, and he talks about how Gideon is the only guy in the Bible that the Bible calls a hero. That's true. He says, oh, oh man of valor, mighty man of valor. And this, this guy, <laughs> I guess so irritated, um, he was telling about how the angel of the Lord, which was the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up and says, oh, mighty man of valor, calls Gideon a hero. Well, he finds Gideon in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, if you don't know agrarian culture, that doesn't stick out to you too much. But the way you thresh wheat is you beat it, that breaks apart the seed pods, then you throw it up in the air, wind goes through it, pulls away the chaff, seeds heavy, falls to the ground. That's how you thresh wheat. Here's the problem. In a wine press was an enclosed building, because you want anything contaminant to fall down the wine, and, and they would literally walk an animal around, they cleaned, crushing grapes, or the people would crush them with their feet. They'd walk on them to crush them, right? And then the juice would flow out, and you're going to ultimately turn that into wine. How much wind is in an enclosed building? Not a lot. Like none. You can't really thresh wheat in a wine press. So why is Gideon in a wine press threshing wheat? Hmm. Midianites are coming. They're looking for harvest. The last thing they're going to think we're doing, because it's the harvest, is making wine. That's where I'll thresh my wheat. This dude is a coward. He is hiding. And the Lord shows up and says, oh, mighty male of So we're listening to the radio, and this is, what the, this is this preacher's interpretation of that text. Isn't it nice that God sees the inner hero in all of us before we ever are one? No. No. That's so nice. And so rejoice this Christmas season because Jesus sees the inner hero in you. I'm like, that is some feel-good nonsense. Like, God is not in heaven going, oh, Midianite oppression. How am I going to cover this? there's a hero let's go get Gideon no this is God speaking over Gideon something Gideon was never going to be it's not Gideon's power when we need a hero we're looking for one and our tendency is to look somewhere other than where God looks that's why when the giant's in the valley and he's yelling and there's a whole army and everybody's looking around Saul who we know physically is the tallest strongest and most a military effective guy in the nation is hiding quaking in his tent and who does jesus choose 13 year old kid with a sling god is on mission to show his glory not your glory right and so god shows up and he does pick gideon so gideon's a little bit of a light in a dark land so the first thing gideon does i love this first thing gideon does is he gets together that night gets a group of guys together gideon doesn't have a good heritage right his dad is the guy that owns this massive uh, idol to Baal in an Asherah grove. And so Baal was your physical deity they worshipped. Asherah was the fertility goddess they worshipped. And they build like this grove, this wooden area, and just wicked worship. So Gideon goes, he takes two oxen, one of them is his dad's. It's an amazing story. Takes a group of guys in the middle of the night, it's cover night. This is like Navy SEAL operation. Nobody needs to know we're here. They go, they use the oxen to tear down the, the, the idol, the altar to Baal, and to ruin the Asherah grove. They then take the, the remnants of this and they rebuild one night. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science to know. Gideon and like 10 guys, this is not world's best manufacturing process. It's all happening a couple of hours at night. They throw together this altar. They take the Asherah wood and then they kill the oxen and they offer it as a sacrifice. Then they all go to back to bed. So everybody wakes up in the morning and it's like, who tore down our, what, what is happening here? And so they go on mission to find out who does it, and eventually they find out it's Gideon. They want to kill Gideon. Gideon's dad actually stands up. And Gideon's dad says, wait a minute, guys. Why are you defending Baal? If Baal has a problem with Gideon, let Baal get after Gideon, which I think is just a great line. So they rename Gideon Jerubbabel. And Jerubbabel, essentially, this is Steve modern-day lingo. This is what happens when you have a pastor who was born and raised in Baltimore. This is what Jerubbabel means. If Baal got a problem with me, then let him come and go nine rounds with me. That's what trouble means. It means let Baal contend with me. Baal can fight with me. Baal's got a problem. Baal can fight with me. So think about what the message is of that. Every day that Gideon lives is a declaration, Baal is powerless. Because if Baal had a problem with me, Baal can kill me. Now, just put that in perspective. How would you feel if you're going about your business and suddenly you meet somebody out at the mall? 
Maybe they're helping you. They're in a store, you know, and, and you look at their name tag, and it's like so small you can't see it, and you're like, what? I'm sorry. What does your, I can't see your name tag. It's tiny writing. I'm old. Can't get the distance. What is it? And they said, oh, my name tag says, if Jesus has a problem, let him strike me with lightning. Now, look, I don't know about you, but, but God can hit specifically, but sometimes there's sparks. I'm backing up. When they name Gideon this, it's a way of saying God has shown up in our darkness. Everything Gideon does, it seems like, is under the cover of darkness. Like, so then Gideon goes, and this when he takes the 300 guys. They've got the torch under a pot, and they go in the middle of the night down into the Midianite camp, and they break it, and they scream and blow trumpets. And so the shattering of the pots, the sudden flame, throws the Midianite camp into confusion. They start fighting one another, and there's massive destruction that takes place. How big is the destruction? 120,000 Midianites are killed. 120,000. Literally, the land is covered in their blood, their corpses. It's effective. Gideon goes on track, and he's tracking down after the Midianites, chasing down their remaining two kings and the guys that are fleeing away. And Gideon comes across two places in Israel, and he says, hey, join up with us. One of them, they have a high tower, which means they have a walled city. He says, join up with us. Let's track these. God has given us victory. Get on mission for the light that's flaming. And they say, no, 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 no. Come back to us when you've got the victory. Then we'll get on board. Isn't that the way people are in oppression and bondage? I'll lend my voice when I know the cause has won. I'm unwilling to risk for what's right. When there's oppression and bondage, you'll have plenty of people that have power, that have wealth and have means, that are unwilling to risk what they have for the sake of helping the oppressed. And they say that to Gideon, and Gideon goes, when I'm done, I'm coming back for you. And that's exactly what he does. When the Midianites are destroyed, he comes back and he brings justice to the oppressors. Why were they able to have a walled city with a tower when the Midianites would come? Why would you? doesn't take rocket science. Because the Midianites wanted some people there that would be on their team. And so they were sellouts, just like Jesus had in his day of sellouts. They had religious leaders who were really in bed with the Roman authorities because it was really about power and control. And as long as you could control them, then we're fine with it. You see, whenever there's darkness, there is the oppression, there's bondage, but there's also injustice. And so Gideon's campaign is one marked by justice and freedom. Well, then we turn in the story and we think about Christ's arrival. When Jesus comes, he's also an unlikely hero, just like Gideon, but in, for some very specific other reasons, right? Jesus is an unlikely hero born under the cover of darkness. He's worshipped by shepherds whose reputation was so poor in their land, they were not permitted to give testimony in court. That's who says we've seen the Messiah and who worships him. He's born to impoverished parents. He's going to hail from the city of Nazareth. While he's born in Bethlehem, he's raised in the region of Nazareth. And so what do the people actually say? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? He works as a tradesman for most of his life. He's ultimately even rejected by his own brothers and sisters. And he does not have the support of the political or the religious leaders of his day. This is where our word mighty comes in. As I said, and you might remember from last week, you always have two terms in each one of these names. One is human, and one is divine. And the human that we see here is the word mighty. What does mighty need? Any time it shows up in the Bible, it shows up a few times in the Old Testament, this Hebrew term, it always has a two-fold emphasis, a two-prong attack, a two-headed spear. It is care for the oppressed and justice for the victim. God portrays himself as mighty in Deuteronomy. He says, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. In other words, I'm just. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Mightiness is always portrayed as one who stands up for the oppressed. We, we could think of it as mighty is a William Wilberforce who lends his voice, his time, his money, his energy, his political clout to try to help the ones who are being subjugated by others. Mighty is the one who would have enough courage to put themselves at risk 
for the sake of someone else. They could be laying home safe in their beds, but instead they get up at night to go minister to someone else. There's also this emphasis of justice in Jeremiah. He says, you show steadfast love to thousands. You repay the guilt of fathers to the children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Jesus truly is the light. Jesus walks sinfully upon this, sinlessly upon this earth. He stays true in holiness during temptations in the desert. Specific assault from Satan he resists. Jesus constantly cares for the dispossessed, the disabled, the demon-possessed, and the depressed. Jesus would have been safe and sound living in Nazareth, making tables and chairs his whole life, and instead he is the mighty one. He stands against the religious leaders who increase oppression on others. They lay burdens on backs that they won't lift. Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light because I'll pull it with you and I'll bear up under it. Jesus says, come and be part of my kingdom, which is full of love and grace and kindness. He gives power and demonstrates his might over the wind and the waves, the cataclysmic nature of this world that we know is weary and winding down, that we have no control over, that, that if a tornado, a hurricane comes, an earthquake hits, it's going to affect the rich just as well as the poor. Jesus controls the nature. He shows his might over those things. He shows might over uh, spiritual things as he casts out demons. He, he multiplies food in his hands. You never go hungry at the table of Jesus because you just give him one boy's lunch and he feeds 20,000. He demonstrates his might with a touch he heals, with a glance he teaches, and with a word he delivers. And yet he ends in death. We look to the mighty God. We're looking for a hero, someone spiritually that can do what we cannot do. And the reason the disciples are so discouraged when he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, and Thomas looks at him and says, we don't know the way. After his death, they're huddled together in an upper room. What are we going to do? When he raises, eventually from the dead, the disciples are caught just staring at the sky. They're lost and they're clueless, clueless and they're saying, where is your might? I wonder if sometimes, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about it this way, he said a lot of times Christians are practical atheists. And what he's getting at there is we think one thing, we live something else. Our, our, what we do actually reveals who we are and what we believe. Do you ever live like Jesus is powerless in the bondage and oppression that you experience spiritually? Do you ever walk around like he could never save that person? He could never help me in this sanctification struggle? The power's not, not there to deliver. The power's not there to overcome the power's not there to provide. Would you be one that would sing Handel's Messiah? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, but your life practically acts like he has no power. Next chapter in the story is we have a hero, but there's plenty of corruption. And it's actually a sad part of the story of Gideon. Because you can sense all the hope of the people. And there's two ways you can see it. One is here in Isaiah, and then one is back in Judges. In Isaiah 9, 5 here, it describes the hope that Gideon brought. It says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, now just, just bear with me a moment. 120,000 people have died, but Israel has been under bondage for seven years. 40 years of peace prior to that, but lots of destruction prior to that because of other offending nations. So when you come in to possess a people, ancient warfare, we could think of it this, let's, let's put it in modern day context. If suddenly, if suddenly um, our nation was attacked by North Korea and boots are on the ground, right? Um, and North Korea knows that, that there's lots of gun ownership in the United States. What do you think they're going to do when they arrive if they want to oppress you and subjugate you? What will they be required to do? take every gun they can find away. Every, every oppressive regime 
must do that, right? Why do they have to do that? Because they have to take away any power you would have to resist, right? So what do you think would happen when the Midianites would come? When the Assyrians eventually would come, when the Babylonians would come, they would remove any ability you have to wage war. And so, yeah, they're going to hide away some swords. They're going to hide away some shields. They're going to try to figure out to make some weapons. Suddenly, scythes are going to become weapons of warfare. Uh, hoes that they would dig in the ground are suddenly going to become a chopping instrument to try to wage war. So suddenly, you have 120,000 Midianites are killed. All their armor, all their weaponry is laying there. And what you do with it is you burn it all. Why would you ever do that? Because in that moment, you're hoping we'll never, ever have to fight again. You might even be familiar with some of the promises of the Messianic kingdom where it talks about that they will beat their swords and their shields into instruments of farming. It's the flip side. It's like, I'm never going to have to fight again, so I'm not going to need this. I'll never need this again. Listen, I love to shoot a good gun. The only reason I'll ever need a gun in the Messianic kingdom is just because it's loud and powerful and it's fun. It's like I was joking with somebody today. I think electric cars are of Satan. Right? It needs to be loud, measurable horsepower, and, and, and go quarter mile fast, right? So I'm not going to need a car to drive around when I get the Messianic Kingdom. I'm hoping there's cars in the Messianic Kingdom. I don't know. But why would you burn it? Because your hope is this. Your hope is in this person. Now we're delivered. I'll never have to fight again. And so you see it in Isaiah, but then you see it in Judges. They go to Gideon after deliverance happens, and this is what they say to him, Judges 8.22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They're like, finally, we've got a guy. And this is where you get that hint in Judges that the whole driving thing is we need a king. We need a king. We need a king. We've got to get out of this cycle. We need a king. Gideon has courage. They, they, they now are convinced. Gideon, God has got power of God is on him. So Gideon, you rule us, your son and your grandson. In other words, we want it for generations to come, and that that's what will give us ultimate hope. For years, William Wilberforce and others fought for the safety of the chimney sweeps. Wilberforce actually died in 1833. The practice of using children as chimney sweeps, the ultimate banning of being able to buy children and steal children and force them up chimneys to suffocate and die did not end until 1875. It had lasted for over two hundred years they actually don't even know how many thousands of children were enslaved as chimney sweeps and murdered i don't know any other word for it so that rich people could have clean chimneys while there are hints of light from gideon and there were hints of light for these chimney sweeps you can only imagine their hope when they would hear that there's this powerful politician giving his money there was this hope that finally this would end it and their nightmare daily existence would be over. There was hope with Gideon. There's hints that, that Gideon and his children would be able to help, but there would be no actual help. You see, Gideon ultimately has tons of wives, gives birth to 70 sons. We don't even know how many daughters. Gideon tells the men of Israel, no, that's not what you need. But let me tell you, Gideon's son actually does come to rule. He rules for three years. You know how he starts his rule? He begins the day of his rule by murdering 69 of his 70 brothers. Gideon took all the earrings. He said, when they were trying to make him king, he said, no, just give me all the earrings, just the earrings, so the smallest portion of the slain Midianites would give. So they give all that to him. Gideon uses some of it for wealth. Some of it he mel melts down into what's called an ephod, just like, almost like a breastplate. He hangs it in his city, and you know what people start doing? They start coming and worshiping that ephod. And so, yeah, he's light. But corruption comes quickly. There is no lasting change because every human hero is still human. Every person only has so much power. William, William Wilberforce only had so much money and so much clout. And while he might be able to push the ball forward a little, he could never get it across the goal line. Gideon, while he was a light, could never do it enough. And so that's what leads us to chapter four. God steps in. The true light dawns. The truest oppression was not actually Midian or its masters. The true oppression is sin in the heart of man. Therefore, Gideon's deliverance could never last. His next generation is wicked. 
Within a year of Gideon's death, they are ruled by this insane, murderous psychopath who would get together mercenaries and kill 69 of his brothers. It's a stunning moment of darkness. In many ways, it's darker than the land was under, when, under the Midianites. Because now this guy is the true king and he's revealed that he doesn't have a problem killing whoever he needs to kill to maintain and consolidate his power. I'll do whatever is necessary, whatever is necessary to stay in power. At least the Midianites would leave. Not Gideon's son. You know, the problem is any hero that we read of in the Bible, we see the corruption and we see the failures. Moses, who murders an Egyptian and then in a moment of his own anger suffers consequences he, so he can't go into the promised land. Whether it's Joshua who eventually dies and goes off the scene, whether it's Samson who is rendered blind and, and powerless because of his own wickedness and the violation of his Nazarite vows, whether it's Gideon or whether it's even David who ultimately commits adultery and murder, refuses to enact justice when his son murders another son or when his son rapes his sister. David, David, the man after God's own heart. David, we say, give us a Messiah from the line of David. David experiences corruption as well. The world is weary. It's need of a deliverer. It's a perfect picture of what Isaiah actually says is in the heart of God later in Isaiah 59. He says, Therefore justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. Stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Move forward to verse 15. It says, Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. When you feel powerlessness, where do you turn? Where do you tend to put your trust and your hope? In whom do you depend? When you have been wronged by someone else and there's injustice, where do you turn? How can Jesus be the hero of not just your story, but through you into the lives of others? Do you turn, when something's going wrong and you're powerless, do you turn to the almighty internet? That I'll find answers here. Do you just turn to another trusted person, thinking that, that true hope can be found in a person here that can give you the right answers? Do you turn to the government to suddenly meet needs, cure injustice, and deal with the oppressed? Do you turn to self-help books? self-help mechanisms you find yourself trapped and in bondage we can talk all we want about a chimney sweep trapped in a dark chimney but if we're honest that's how you feel spiritually unable to breathe unable to see unable to move powerlessness where do you feel powerless darkness brings injustice and bondage the mighty mighty god the messiah is the one who is intended to deliver And so God calls us to embrace the mighty God that power may be seen. This is where we get the divine part of the name. You see, this is an interesting name because um, some of you have been around church life enough, you get this. Some of you, this is new information for you. Um, God frequently, when he would describe himself throughout the Old Testament, he, he describes himself through his names. And one of the things that God would love to do is he would take his name, El, which is the Hebrew word for God, and then he would attach another word to it to describe his attributes, his character what he does and how he operates, right? And so some famous ones are El Akkad, which is the one God. Or El Hanaaman, the faithful God. So my God is faithful. Or El Sadiq, or, or, or we talk about it as El Sidkenu, God is righteous. El Shaddai, the sufficient God. Or El Roy, the God who sees me. Hagar prayed that. Hagar is out, run out of the, of the camp by Sarah, and she's got her son, and she says, El Roy, God, don't you see me? Here's the problem. God can be the one. God can be righteous. God can be faithful. God can see you and hear you, but if he has no power, he cannot help you. God sees the injustice. He sees the battle, the mess, the darkness. 
and into that breaks forth the glorious light of the Messiah. No man can deliver us. All of them will be flickering lights that will be snuffed out. All of them are pale shadows of what we really need. All of them would be corrupted. All of them are human. We need something more than just a powerful man. We need something more than a superman. We need God. And so he says, El Gibbon, the mighty God, has come. We see him break through in bondage and injustice. We live with lost people around us. Family and friends and neighbors. We need God's power to break through their darkness that they might see His light. Who is on your heart right here in this moment, right now, you know doesn't know Jesus. And they are consumed in darkness. They are blind to their sin. They're living in suffering. They're living in bondage. Their own desires, their own flesh rules over them. And you know that they're even blind to their own blindness. Who in your life you burden for right in this moment that the mighty God would break through? We come at Christmas to the one who has the true power to deliver them. We live in bondage to things like sinful habits. And yet Christ has put within us His resurrection power through the Spirit to grow and to change us. In this war, in this spiritual war, O saint, O believer, who is on mission to become like Jesus, that is a war. But you and I struggle and we wonder why God has not given us immediate victory. It's probably the most common question I get in discipleship or counseling scenarios. Why won't God just deliver me? It feels like God has not, in this war of sanctification, God doesn't just end it with an atomic bomb, but He seems like He's calling me to slog crawling through the mud, regaining an inch at a time and feeling like I'm sliding back at others. Well, in one sense, we would have wanted, obviously, this wicked practice of the chimney sweeps to be ended in a moment. Of course. We would have wanted the oppression to be, to be silenced, deliverance to happen, these children to be permitted to go to school, to be adopted, to be loved and raised in health and wellness. In another sense, in another sense, the fight spanned for 200 years. There were people that gave, there were men and women who gave their entire lives to that fight their wealth to that fight, their means to that fight, their friendships to that fight, who fought endlessly in the 200-year fight demonstrated the value of the fight and the commitment of the deliverers. When you and I are slogging every day, feeling like we're in bondage and we need just the power of the mighty God to help us, I want you to know, each new day, you will find His mercies. Each new day you will find His grace. Each new day you will find His power. And what God is saying in our wrestling match as we're crawling up a muddy, muddy hill towards sanctification, toward like Jesus, to live every day in that fight is to declare His power and the worth of it. There's value in fighting to be like Jesus. So at Christmas, we celebrate the mighty God who gives us strength and power, and victory, and almost more precious than that, when we fail, He gives us mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. We live feeling trapped like chimney sweeps sometimes, trapped by the responsibilities of our lives, obligations, trapped by monotonous chores and tasks, trapped by endless schoolwork, trapped by the suffocating pressure of bills. Does the mighty God deliver from those? Doesn't He when He gives true meaning to our work? when he lifts it out of its utter feeling at times like it's pointless, when you can't change one more diaper, make one more meal, wash one more piece of clothing, administer one more piece of discipline, and you are so weary, doesn't the mighty God enter that moment and tell you there is value as you're doing this for my glory, there is value as you're doing this to my namesake, there is value because this is showing that we push against the wickedness of this world. Doesn't God give might to it when he rewards even small glasses of water done in ministry in his name? When you and I feel absolutely powerless to effect change or to actually do real ministry, he says, even the smallest glimpse of my light coming out of you, I will reward. Doesn't he show his might when he reminds us that our true treasure isn't found here, but it's found in eternity? Nothing spells dissatisfaction. Nothing spells misery. Nothing spells want like Christmas. 
Every movie ends in a happy ending. Every TV show, the families gather together. Everybody gets what they want. Everybody's happy. And you turn off the TV and you're alone and cold and wondering. And doesn't the mighty God come into our lives to communicate to us there's actually nothing here that will ever truly make you happy. So stop chasing it. Delight in his good gifts here, but only as a shadow of what is to come. The mighty God has the power to deliver us from the bondage of the here and now with meaning for today and purpose for tomorrow. But then secondarily, I think at Christmas, we embrace the truth of the mighty God by shining the light. In Jesus being the wonderful counselor, we point people to him by pointing them to his word. They need answers for life, so we say, let me point you to the wonderful counselor, the one who gives miraculous wisdom, and he does it through his word. But what about the mighty God? You know, it's interesting, when did the practice with chimney sweeps finally end? Lasting change did not happen until 1875. It started in 1666, didn't end until 1875, and it ended because at Fordham Hospital they needed their chimneys cleaned, so they hired a master chimney sweep, and he took 12-year-old George Brewster, and he sent him up a chimney, and George got stuck. And for three days, George was stuck in the chimney of a building that was built to heal the sick. Now, it shouldn't take three days. But it took them three days to break through the chimney to pull this 12-year-old boy out, and he died days later. And it galvanized the nation. And yeah, it feels so wrong that one little boy finally had to give his life to end a horrific practice. That boy's a hero, right? All he did that day was what he was supposed to do. And people needed to see the true cost and the true sacrifice. Almost like Jesus had to come and die to deliver you and I from the power of sin, the punishment of sin, and one day the presence of sin. You see, we sing as children, let this little light shine. We know that we're actually called to be salt and light to this world. And Jesus has died, and so how do we point people to the mighty God? How do we point them to the true hero that it seems to end in sorrow with death, but ultimately he's resurrected? How did Jesus want that light to continue to go forth, the light of the mighty God, into the darkness of this world? Here's how he wanted to do it, through you and through me. He said, let your work so shine before men that they may see that light and glorify your Father in heaven. This comes on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount when he says you were weary, you were mourning, you were poor in spirit, rejoice when people persecute you, when they say all manner of evil against you. This is what I want you to know this morning. It is in the darkness of oppression. It is in the darkness of bondage. It is in the feeling trapped of our wrestling with sanctification, of injustice done against us. When you and I say no, but I will walk in the feet, in the shoes, in the sandals, in the steps of my Savior who shined a glorious light, all I can do is give a cup of cold water. All I can do is a very minimum of love someone around me. All I can do is the very, the very paling of telling someone that their hope is in Jesus. And God takes that flickering candle, listen now, and it points to Jesus, the glorious dawning of the day that our dark world desperately needs. You and I embrace the mighty God when we live in the truth of what he's doing in us, listen now, and when we shine it out of us at Christmas time. It's not about presence. It's about his presence in us, coming out of us. I call to you, you may think I am powerless to change all these things. You're right, so was Gideon. It wasn't Gideon's power, it was God's power. This Christmas, commit to the mighty God being seen and known. What should you do then? All God needed Gideon to do, listen now, was the next right thing. That's it. You don't have to dream up some great fantastical mission and organization to deliver this world. All he's calling you and I to do is the next little step of obedience. And if God can use a coward like Gideon, 
then he can use a coward like Steve Johns. If he'll reward a little cup of cold water, then surely he can take that flickering light of the mighty God's presence in you and in me, and he can beat back the darkness of a fallen world. Darkness brings injustice and bondage. But the Messiah, the mighty God, he delivers.